0: I want, to, I want us to think about God for the next few Sundays, and um, no matter which angle we take to look at Him, we're, only, we're not even scratching the surface, because for the created to try to understand the Creator, to try to fathom the depth and, and breadth and height length of His love um, would be an impossible task, but let's, let's broach it this morning. The sermon is real simple. It's entitled, God is Love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Because to me, if we talk about the characteristics of God, love is foundational to them all. So God is love. You've probably heard sermons on this your entire life. But were I to preach on this from now until my dying day, I still couldn't cover it all. But this morning just a few characteristics of of God's love and what that means for us today. 1 John 4, 16 through 21 says this, so we know and believe the love God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If you've ever been fearful, anxious, or afraid, you probably quoted this verse. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. and He who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. Foundational to every characteristic attribute of God is his love. And love is not just a possession that God has. God and love are equivalent terms. They are equivalent beings, equivalent things. So we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. Bow with me. Father, as we come, just to plumb the depths of the mystery of your love, give us all a new insight that we can take with us from this place that will help us appreciate a little more deeply who you are, and what your love is about and what that can mean for us living in this world today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I was reflecting on this this week, it seemed to me that, that God, that the many facets of the characteristics of God are like a diamond and no matter which facet we choose to look through to see God, He shines through all the more brilliantly. And we can't look at every facet because God's depths, His riches, are beyond our finite comprehension. And so we just do the best we can trying to understand Him, trying to figure a little bit more out about Him so it helps us love Him and appreciate more of what He's done for us. Foundational to everything about God, everything that's written about Him Everything that's been described about him by theologians, foundational to them all is this simple three-word fact. God is love. And notice it doesn't say that God has love or God displays love or or God reflects love. It just says, God is love. Now think about that for a minute. Of all the religions in the world, how many can say that? the one they worship is equivalent to love, only ours. I never heard a Muslim say Allah is love. I never heard a Buddhist say Confucius is love. Ours alone is all about love. It's one of the many differences between Christianity and all the other world religions. Our creator, the being that we worship, is equivalent with love. And I don't know much about mathematics, but I know to say that that God is equivalent with love means that everything that God possesses and everything that love possesses are the same. And if we abide in God and we abide in love, the three of us are equal. The three of us are in that same circle that God is and love is and we abide in God and God abides in us and we abide in love. (laughs) Excuse me. So all those things. We can be with God and with love. 1 John has to be the simplest, easiest-to-translate book in the New Testament. It's the easiest, the simplest Greek. I remember in seminary, or actually in college, taking my first class in Greek. We called it Baby Greek. It was the first semester of Greek, and we began learning vocabulary, and the first verses we translated were out of 1 John, and I can still remember the hair on the back of my neck standing up and getting goosebumps when I read Phaos Eston Agape. Theos, God, Eston is, agape, love. It's just so simple, it's so straightforward. And I was thinking, how can the same author who wrote the Gospel of John, with all of its depth and complexity and symbolism, also write the same letter of 1 John? So simple and so concrete and so straightforward. And it occurred to me that as John the Apostle aged, in his earlier years he was he was deep and he was complex and he was writing a gospel trying to describe Jesus. But as he got older, and in his latter years, you know what happened? He began to simplify his life, and things became more clear. And he had, with that clarity, he began to understand in his latter years, and with his great wisdom, that all the mystery of God can be summarized in three words, God is love. Now I've read a lot of theologians, and they say that as they move through all the complex theological terms and ideas like omnipresent or omniparents or whatever you want to call it, that... Uh, that eventually they all come down to this same simple truth at the end of their lives that God is love. And you don't need to know any more than that, but that is foundational to everything that they've spent their lives studying. The best explanation of the love of God is here in the New Testament. God is love. Love is His nature. Love is who He is. It's what He's all about. And so I've written down some characteristics of God's love in your worship bulletin just to follow along they all begin with the letter s and the first thing i want you to know about god's love is just how surprising it is how surprising it is it's not expected it's not deserved it's just totally given to us gracefully by a mighty god and it began with the jewish people in the old testament deuteronomy 7 7 says that when god chose the jews It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love upon you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. And then if you move over to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that God didn't choose the wise people. He didn't choose the wealthy people. He didn't choose the smart people. But he chose that which was low and despised in the world to shame all those who thought they were somebody, who thought they were important. God's love is so surprising because he chooses folks who are nothing special. Folks like the Jews, folks like us. You remember the little Ogden Nash limerick, how odd of God to choose the Jews? I added a second line, "An order too to choose me and you. And it's not that he's chosen us and hasn't chosen other people. He's chosen everybody. He wants everybody to know him. But it's a surprising love because... He loves us in spite of our sin. And to love someone who loves us, we can understand that. We like people who like us. We love people who love us. But how many people can you say you love that hurt you? How many people can you say you love that take advantage of you, that do you harm? That's what God has done. Romans 5 eight. he loved us while we were still sinners. He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for us. While we were still sinners, God loved us when we were not worth loving. And that's what makes it surprising because to Him, we were worth loving. So much so that He sent His Son. It is surprising. The second thing I want you to see about God's love is that it is a seeking kind of love. God seeks us out to draw us back to him. We may flee from his presence, but there's nowhere we can go to escape him because he is pursuing us. He's been called the hound of heaven and he is after us. And it's not just we alone that he's after, but he is after everybody. One of the favorite parables in the New Testament of a lot of people is the parable of the prodigal son. And you know that parable, how that younger son comes to his wealthy father and says, give me the inheritance that is due me. And his father, out of his love, gives his son his inheritance, and he takes it into a far country, and he squanders it in riotous living. And he is there feeding on the pods that the swine turned away from. And he said, what am I doing here? My father's servants have food enough in despair. And so in verse 17 of Luke 15, it says he came to himself and he decided to go back home. And as he is approaching his home, his father sees him on the horizon and runs and embraces him and puts a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and welcomes him home and throws a party. And we love that parable because of all it reveals to us about God's love. But there's one thing lacking in that parable. Because in the first two parables in Luke 15, there's a parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And what is different in those two parables from the parable of the prodigal son is that in those two parables, in the first one, when the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one goes missing, what does he do? He doesn't wait, scanning the horizon like the father and the prodigal son, hoping the sheep will find his way back home. What does he do? He pursues him. He goes off after him. He looks for him, and he finds him, and he places him on his shoulders like that beautiful stained glass window in the chapel, and he brings him home. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman has ten coins, and she loses one, and she doesn't just wait and hope that in the course of the day it'll turn up, but she turns her house upside down looking for that coin, and when she finds it, she's rejoicing, and Both those parables conclude with, and great will be the rejoicing in heaven because one which was lost is found. In both those parables, the shepherd and the woman go seeking, pursuing, and finding that which is lost. That's what God does for us. He doesn't wait for us to come to Him. He's not passive. He is actively pursuing us because His love is seeking And I don't know where you are in your relationship with God today. Maybe you're close and maybe you feel his presence all the time. Or maybe you have run from him or maybe you have never allowed him to come to you. But I want you to know that God is pursuing you, that he is seeking you. And if you're within the sound of my voice now, he may be convicting you right now to come unto him, that he is right there. And the distance between you is not great because he is pursuing you all along. He is seeking you because he has a seeking kind of love. The third kind of love he has, it is selfless. It's a selfless love. It's not selfish. We have ignored him. We have hurt him. We have rebelled against him. And he has not turned his back on us because his love for us is selfless. How about that? He is so much love. He is love personified that no matter how we treat him, no matter what we do to him, he does not turn inward. He does not turn away. But he is still there with us. He's willing to forgive everything, past, present, future. He's willing to forgive it all. It reminds me of an old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy writes this note on a piece of paper, and the note says, this note absolves me from all blame. And she goes and asks Linus to sign it, and Schroeder to sign it, and Peppermint Patty to sign it. And she gives it to Charlie Brown, and Charlie Brown, before he signs it, says, Lucy, what does this mean? And she says, no matter what happens, this absolves me from all blame. And the last seen has Charlie Brown there scratching his chin and thinking out loud to himself, he says, now this would be a nice document to have. This absolves me from all blame. And guess what? God has done that for us. Because his selfless love and Jesus' death on the cross, no matter what sins we have made, are making, or will ever make, can be forgiven. The cross absolves us from all blame. Isaiah 1.8 says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. No matter how bad, no matter how dark, no matter how red your sins of the past are, God takes them and he washes them in the blood of Jesus and they are made as white as snow, as white as wool. And that's what God's forgiveness makes possible for us because it is selfless. It is surprising, it is seeking, it is selfless. It is also a saving love. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says, God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. He has saved us, we were dead in our sins but because of the love that he has loved us, He has made us alive together with Christ and has raised us up with him. We have a new life in Jesus Christ. And apart from God, I don't care how long you may live on this world, apart from God, you are a dead man walking. But with Christ, no matter the length of your days, you are alive in this world and you'll have eternal life in the world to come. God can take hold of our life, and He can change us. And what I love about it is when God changes us, we are new creatures from the inside out. It's not a gradual transformation, but it is a dramatic and radical change that happens when Jesus comes into our heart. And I can give you many examples of that. One of the best, perhaps, came from a century ago when a man named Charles Studd, who was a successful and wealthy entrepreneur, businessman in London in the 1800s. Lost a bet one evening, and to pay off his bet, he had to go hear an American evangelist who was preaching in his city at that time, Dwight L. Moody. So he went that night to hear the revival, Dwight L. Moody preaching, and after the message, Charles Studd looked at his friend and said, that man has just told me everything I have ever done. That man has just told me everything I have ever done. And he went back the next night, and the next night, and the next night. Every night of the revival, and at the end of that revival, Charles Studd gave his life to Jesus. And Charles Studd only lived two years after doing that. But his name is in the annals of English history. Because of the difference he made in those two years, he turned his mansion into a place to study the Bible, and he had Bible study groups there all the time. He, he went to his tailor, he went to his cigar maker, he went to every acquaintance and he told them about Jesus, and some scoffed at him and it just made him smile all the more. He wrote letters to his friends telling them what Jesus had done for the, him and, and urging them to give their hearts and lives to Jesus too. And he spent two years of his life, and it was said that he did more for the kingdom in those two years than most people do in 80. Because when he gave himself to Jesus, he was changed, he was saved, and it was radical and dramatic. Someone asked his limousine driver to explain the difference. And his driver said, all I can say is that it may be the same skin on the outside, but there's a new man on the inside. Did you hear me? It can be the same skin on the outside, but it's a new man on the inside. That's the only way I know to describe the change that God can make when he saves a person from their sins. It is a saving love. Finally, it is a sustaining love, which means that you don't have to worry If you wake up tomorrow, whether or not God's going to love you, His love is not capricious. It does not come and go. Deuteronomy 7 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. If you look through the pages of the Old Testament, you'll see the phrase steadfast love over and over again. It's a Hebrew phrase. And it means that we are in covenant with God. And when we are in covenant with God, God, it's like a a legal binding document. God binds himself to us with his steadfast love if we love him and keep his commandments. God is in steadfast love with us. And you don't have to worry and wonder whether God loves you or not, no matter what you do. God's love is steadfast, it is constant, and it is steady. Charles H. Spurgeon, another great London preacher, went out to visit a member of his congregation one day. It was a farmer. And the farmer had a weather vane on top of his barn. And I don't know why I woke up this morning dreaming about this, but I could just see it in my mind's eye. This farmer had a weather vane on top of his barn. And on the arrow of the weather vane was inscribed the words God is love. And so Spurgeon asked the farmer, "What do you mean by putting the words God is love on a weather vane? Are you saying that God's love is changeable, that it that whichever way the wind's blowing, that's where it'll veer? It's changing?" And the farmer said, "Of course not." By putting the words God is love on the weather vane, what I'm saying is that no matter which way the wind is blowing, God is still love. No matter which way the wind is blowing, God is love. You don't have to worry about that. It is changeless. It is sustaining. It's surprising, seeking, selfless, saving, and sustaining. And I could go on and on talking about God's love the rest of the week and still not scratch the surface but I want to conclude this morning because there is a response here that we're supposed to make now what would you assume that because God loves us that we're supposed to do in return what would you assume love him back right we're supposed to thank him we're supposed to love God back that's not what the Bible says here it's not what it says listen If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him that he who loves God should love his brother also. So I was expecting here that John would say, because God loves you, you should love him back. But what does he say? He says, because because God loves you, you should love your brother. You should love your sister. And whether or not you do that is an accurate indication of how much you love God. I was thinking about this between services. It's kind of God's way. It's the early way of paying it forward. God says, pay it forward. I love you. You love your brother. You love your sister. And in that process, I will feel your love. So focus your love on one another and let that be your expression of your love for God. Here is our measure and our motive. How much do we love each other? As much as God loves us. Why do we love each other? Because God has loved us. That's the why and the how much. Because God loves us as much as God loves us. We are the church built on love, not just geographically, but also in a symbolic way, because God first loved us. So let me ask you, is God's love in you? You know what? You don't have to answer that question, because I'll be able to tell by how well we love one another. Let's bow together. God, we are here this morning because we know you love us and your love is boundless. (laughs) Wherever we are, whatever we've done, whatever our past, you still love us. Because it is a selfless love, a sacrificing love, and a saving love. And we are overwhelmed. Time and again, just pondering that truth. So God, help us to love you. And to show we love you by loving each other. And let that make the difference in our world that you want us to make. They'll know we're Christians by our love. It's not complicated. It's about as simple as it can get. And so we offer ourselves to you and ask you to transform us, maybe the same skin on the outside, but new beings on the inside. Sharing your love with the world as you've called us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.